0: So we read the first chapter of Genesis this morning, and we see here that John chapter 1, the first chapter of John, of course, is another creation account. And I think it would be important for us to recognize that when God saves a soul, when he brings about redemption, it is, a, it is nothing less than a miraculous creation. It is a creation that God does in us, right? We... We see that uh, it certainly seems to be the intent of the Holy Spirit that we would recall the creation account in Genesis 1 as we read uh, and take in what it is that God has given to us here in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. We see that salvation and creation are very closely related. In the New Testament, we see this account right here in John. And again, as I said, it may be that we have perhaps a sub-Christian view uh, of our own Salvation. Perhaps our understanding is that we we make this happen, or that it's uh, something of small account, something that is of negligible importance. But it's nothing less than a miracle of God. It is a creation in you as an individual that was what was that was begun from time immemorial in the past through a covenant to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit such that you, not a nameless individual, but such that you, your own particular individual that God knows and He has set in motion all of the means by which you would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is nothing less than a miracle. To take it as anything other than that would be to misunderstand fatally the proclamation that John has for us here in this passage of Scripture. John does the same thing that the creation account of Genesis does. He really provides for us two stories slightly different ways. We pick up the story here in verse 9. After we see the prologue here of the passage referring, of course, to none less than than John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. So verse 9 says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And as we think about this uh, passage of Scripture here, verses 9 to 18, it would be good for us to think about a, a number of things. Of course, one of those is that Jesus Christ is the only source of light. You want to speak about the exclusivity of the gospel This is a place where we can see it. You want light? You want the light of life? You'll get it nowhere else. The light of men comes from one source, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that here in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world. Secondly, as we get to the point here in verse 16, we see that Jesus Christ is the only source of grace. Do you desire grace? Do you desire to receive that which you don't deserve? There's only one source for that, and that is the Lord Jesus. There's no other place to go, nowhere else to go. There's no help in no other quarter, no other place but the Lord Jesus. Let us be sure of anything, let us be sure of that. And then thirdly, we see here that if you would like to have knowledge of God, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know the Father? Do you want to know what God is like? Then you must know Christ. And that's what he's saying here. But let's think. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's go all the way back to verse 9 here. And I'd like to to help you. Think about this for a minute, and I'd like for us to meditate. Not on light, but on darkness. You want to help yourself meditate on darkness? Close your eyes. Just close them tight as you can. It's not complete darkness, but it's darkness. Can't see. Our ability to see, of course, obviously impacts our ability to do anything. But of course, he isn't talking about only the light that comes into our eyes and allows us to see things and navigate in this world and to use our gifts and dexterity and so forth. Obviously, people that cannot see have tremendous abilities. But nonetheless, we understand that he's talking about spiritual life. The Lord Jesus Christ is... Alone, the source of that. Let's think about light, why don't we? Let's meditate on light, on the light, on the Lord Jesus Christ. We could think about different uses for light, children. I often think of a lighthouse, for instance. A lighthouse, what's a lighthouse for? It directs the navigation of a ship such that it would avoid the rocks. Did you know that there uh, are were people that perhaps still exist, I don't know, called wreckers. And those wreckers would put up false lights, and they would allow the ships to wreck, and then they would plunder the ships. That would be a false light, not a true light. The Lord Jesus is a true light. He is the one. He's the sacrifice. He's the lamb spoken of in the Old Testament. He's the eternal king, the one spoken of in Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince... Prince of Peace this is the Lord Jesus Christ this light is also spoken of in verses 4 and 5 in him was life and the life was the light of men it shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it what does that mean? Or does it mean that the darkness hasn't overcome the light? It certainly must mean that the life of Christ prevails. It certainly must mean spiritually that uh, there's no place that you can go into darkness that Christ can't save you out of. It certainly means that you are forgivable that you are savable. And so we should be hopeful that Christ has said, and he meant it, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the light of mankind. The Bible is telling us that here in verse 4. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's the true light. If you were to look back at the ninth plague in Egypt, children, you would see that was the plague of darkness. And it was an interesting thing about that, that plague of darkness. So all of Egypt was cast into a darkness. They couldn't see their hand in front of their face. But what about the children of Israel? How are they doing? Well, they all had flashlights. No? They had light. They could see. They had light where they were. They had the light of God. So we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is that for us. And also, I would direct your attention to Revelation chapter 21. Go ahead and turn there if you would. You want to read about heaven? Well, you need to read Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. In Revelation 21 and verse 23, the Bible says this, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. No need of sun. The light of the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of light for heaven? It's the source of light for us. We think about light. Light is certainly a symbol that we enjoy during this season, right? We we delight ourselves in lighting things. We we actually might drive around and see the lights, right? And this is a great occasion for us to be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ being the light of the world. The only light, not one of many, or one of a few even, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of life, that which provides for us life. It's the Lord Jesus. Now let's look here at verse ten. Now verse ten, as we look into this creation story, we see that the story takes a purposefully tragic tone. As we Consider this one who came into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, He was in the world and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. So, first we talked about light. The Lord Jesus is compared to light. He is called the light. He came into the world that He created in a humble way and decided to persuade mankind of His identity without the flare of his true majesty and honor in a way similar that had been prophesied about him the lord jesus christ the bible says the world was made through him so when you listen to the creation account in genesis chapter 1 who do you think it is that's being used to create the world Apparently it's the same person of the Trinity that was incarnated in this little baby that came and was born in Bethlehem in a stable. The Bible says here in verse 10, and of course it records this in other places as well, not least of which in the book of Hebrews, that the world was made through him. And yet the world didn't know him. Not very many of you have had the opportunity to walk through a structure that you've made amidst all the buzz of people in it and been the only one to know that you're the one that built it. That you're the one that laid the foundation. That you understand everything that works there, all of the ways that it was created and made. You understand the the underpinnings and you understand all the structural supports and the, the fasteners and All of the ways that it works. And there you are. No one else would know. But you know everything about that building. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. And we see here again this tragic sort of understanding is cast upon the situation here in verse 10. The world did not know him. He goes on in verse 11, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. Do you ever wonder why the world didn't recognize Jesus Christ as the Creator and Savior of the world? Maybe you shouldn't look so quickly over the bumbling man in the factory. (laughs) He might have been the one that put the building together. What were they looking for? What did they see? Why did they miss the Savior of the world? Have you ever missed seeing something because you expected it to look differently than it did? Have you ever missed something because you expected it to look differently than it really was when you saw it? What was that like? You ever underestimated someone? You ever said, "Oh, well you you couldn't do that?" <laughs> then been surprised? You ever been surprised when someone said, "Yeah"? Yeah, I saw you just the other day. You had no idea. The Lord Jesus Christ came to the place that he created. Was it a secret? Was it a surprise? Anna and Simeon didn't think so. They saw him when he was a little baby in the temple. There might be other reasons that you or we might overlook or ignore people. It might be because we don't think they're very important to us. You might not think you need them, so you overlook them. How many people on the earth, when the Lord Jesus Christ was walking the earth, how many people considered that they needed a Savior? A Savior that would separate themselves from the damnation of their own sinfulness. That would make a separation between what they certainly deserve by way of mercy and give to them the sweetness of God's grace. How many of those people that saw the Lord Jesus recognized that He was in fact the only hope they had? But He didn't look like that. Right? He, He didn't look like that at all. He came to earth... In a very homely kind of way. Had no place to lay his head. Christ informed his people over the course of many years what to expect in the Lord Jesus Christ. A suffering servant, the atonement for sins, the healer, the proclaimer of truth. It wasn't new. The Lord Jesus Christ came exactly as had been proclaimed. And he was a A suffering servant, yes, but he was also a reigning king and would be ultimately the reigning king. And then ultimately every knee would bow. The reality is we perhaps underestimate the great need that we have to have our sins removed from us such that we can enjoy a relationship with our Creator and a hope of heaven. We may desire earthly or worldly things or success more than that which we think perhaps is sort of in the bag for us. And it required none other than the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now this isn't only the world that he came to, right? Right? I mean, it's one thing to just come to earth. But the Lord Jesus Christ, He didn't just merely come to earth somewhere on this planet. He came to earth and He settled where God's people are. The children of Israel, the children of Abraham. He came to His own people. Those who, those who had the very oracles of God, who had heard the prophets from ages before speak of this one who would come, this, this servant from the tribe of Judah, the son of David, He came home. It's the same phrase that was used when Jesus said on the cross to John, Take Mary into your home. John wants the reader to feel the full tragedy here. It was his own people who didn't receive him. Even many who knew of Messiah to come did not receive him. Can you imagine coming home? That place where you 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 have fond memories. Christmas is a time when we think of home some of our memories of home are perhaps not so wonderful but some of them are and at least we can relate to what we hope is a faithful home and enjoy that so here's the Lord Jesus, he comes home no welcome it's very different for him Isaiah chapter 65, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, Regarding God, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face, continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. So we consider light, we consider darkness as we began here. Next, we, we could sort of think a little bit about a regular guy, the Lord Jesus. Looked like a regular guy. Of course, everyone wasn't born in a stable, but nonetheless, he was a carpenter. He was one who, who was involved in the battle for bread each day. Had a humble home. He had brothers and sisters and a mother and a father. In his humanity, he had to learn to eat and he had to learn good manners. As an older brother, he was likely taught how to be quiet around little children in the home. Maybe how to help them. The Bible says that he grew in stature and wisdom with God and man. This one that looked regular, of course, was nothing less than the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So why did he come? Verse 12 says, But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The story's tragic aspects are not, over, not to overshadow the fact that while a minority, some would in fact receive the Lord Jesus. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Think of it. This is adoption. But it's very interesting. Even It seems to even go beyond adoption in that The children of God begin to take on the attributes, and certainly you can see this in adopted children, even in our own congregation, begin to take on the attributes of the one who adopted us. Children of God, the attributes that Christ gives to us through union with Him, of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of gentleness, of self-control. These attributes of our Father in heaven. We begin to look like Him. We become children of God. That's what what He says. That's what the Lord Jesus came to earth to accomplish. To all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. The new nature. Christ gives to us a new nature. Our previous nature before the recreation, before this miraculous thing that God does in us. Our old nature is that of sinful ways and sinful things. That that would incline one to spend an eternity outside of Christ. But this new nature draws us into this process in which we grow and become more and more like Him because of what He does in our lives in an instant and justifies us by applying His righteousness to us and taking upon Himself our sins. He came into the world to recreate people and to adopt them as his own people. Are you a child of God? Do you delight yourself in your heavenly Father? Do you see your need for him every moment? Are you thankful, so thankful for your union with the Lord Jesus, through whom you receive all of the sweet graces of God through Christ? They're not yours. Not yours because of you, but they're yours because you're attached to Jesus. They'll always be with you. It's like having this line of credit. It's always there. You'll never outspend him. The child of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. People are born into the heavenly family of God. If you were to turn a few pages over in John, in chapter 3, you would see the Lord Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. In chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Are you the teacher of Israel? And don't understand? these things someone ever upbraided you for not knowing a certain thing something that you considered perhaps unimportant in fact it might have very well been unimportant but the Lord Jesus Christ is saying this to Nicodemus Look, it's kind of okay if you don't know about this stuff and that stuff and this stuff over here. That's kind of okay. But you're the teacher of Israel. And you don't know that entrance into the kingdom of heaven has to do with being born again. It's a new creation. It's something dramatically different than anything that that others might think of or perceive. We can look all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, or look no further than Ezekiel 37 if you want, but nonetheless, recreation is not a new thing. But for the first time, for the first time in the New Testament, it's spoken of openly here in John chapter 1, that to come into the family of God involves nothing less than being born again. Being born again. It's not just a new friendship. It's not just some card you carry, it's not some qualification or some degree that you've earned, it's not any of that. It's it's just like birth. You come into this world and no one asked you. <laughs> you didn't grant permission to be born. No. God brought you forth. That's what he's saying here. This piling up of expressions is John's way of placing great emphasis on the fact that the Jews' racial heritage would do them no good in a kingdom that's determined by a spiritual heritage. The kingdom is a spiritual thing as we see the fulfillment of all things. Yet no less real. Spiritual birth. You say, "Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> spiritual, yeah. Okay, got it." No, wait. It's no less real, but it's spiritual, not physical. We understand physical birth. Some of you understand it much better than others, but nonetheless, we understand physical birth. But are we like Nicodemus? Do we not understand spiritual birth? That's what the Lord Jesus is speaking of here. In fact, it doesn't have anything to do with blood of who your Father is, or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is the first time the new birth is spoken of by name in the Bible. Interesting to see how the concept, again, here is fenced, such that it's understood to be solely of God. Again, new birth is introduced here in John chapter 1, and in its introduction, we we see very clearly what it is, right, and what it isn't. And it's important for us to recognize what it is that the Lord is telling us here. Let's look at what it isn't now. It's not by descent of Abraham or any other godly people. You should praise the Lord if your parents are in Christ. You should, you should be so thankful for that. And affirm the sweetness of that fact in your lives. But that's not why you're redeemed. While more depravity does transmit from parents to children, saving grace clearly doesn't. And this is one of the things that J.C. Rowell makes so poignant. As he speaks in his little booklet, Duties to Parents, he affirms this idea that parents bring into the world unasked children and give to them depravity which will absolutely send them to hell. But they cannot give them saving grace unless used as a means that God would use to bring these children into faith. It has nothing to do with the blood attachment to a believing mother and father that would draw one into heaven. Yes, certainly the sweet testimony of parents should be that which is used to bring children to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not the cause. The cause is spiritual. The means may be something different. Believers don't come... Don't become what they are by their own wills. Our moral depravity permanently disables our abilities to savingly trust Christ and follow him. Nature cannot change itself. Obviously, popular science will tell you something different. But to think, upon the words of C.S. Lewis, there's a deeper science. (laughs) In the same way that the earth and creatures can't produce themselves, to think that individuals can fall upward to saving faith would be to attribute an ability to the nature of fallen man that is simply not possible. It is not in the nature of fallen man To be able to act savingly for himself. It's simply impossible. That's another indicator that new life in Christ is miraculous. And it isn't a miracle of mankind. It's a miracle accomplished by God. Is it isn't it isn't in our nature. You can't vote for Jesus savingly. The Bible reveals that He gives us life. And this life is the light of men. And through this life in union with the Lord Jesus, we can then desire savingly the Lord Jesus. But it is important that we get the order correct. Otherwise, you'll be thanking yourself instead of the one who's really responsible for redeeming you. Believers don't come what they are by their own wills. Man cannot create, recreate himself. Believers cannot gain new life by the will of men. If I could, I would... A minister can't confer saving grace upon you. I don't have that power. Just a regular guy. But Christ can. He can give you life. The Bible says that he alone is the source of life. This is important. We were recreated, verse 13, born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Born of God. His plan, which was his practice, was to live among his people. Not aloof, far off, but to enter into the same conditions as his people. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As I said, challenges of first century life as a common person, the battle for bread, the oppressive government, misguided religious establishment, continually dodging those who wanted to kill him. That was the life of Christ on earth. And this is part of his humility, of course. Part of the station in life that the Lord Jesus had when he came to earth was, was first of all, not least of which, is he was born a common man. I mean, it's one thing to come to earth as a, as a full-grown human being. But the Lord Jesus didn't even have that privilege. He came to earth as a vulnerable little child. And there is no creature that's more vulnerable than a human being. that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He involved himself in being a tradesman, a carpenter, learning from his father. Growing up in a humble home. Verse 14 says he became flesh. And the idea here isn't sinful, but weak. He took upon himself the weakness of flesh. This one who is immortal, invincible... Took upon himself the limitations of flesh. Dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Literally pitched his tent. Should remind us of the tabernacle and the glory of the Father. He assumed human nature permanently. Though not permanently in its weakened condition. He lived among men for a while. This is instructive to us in a number of ways, not least of which how we should live, of course, but to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ, the most majestic one, the one who dwelled in inapproachable light, the one who has angels, indescribable, bowing down, crying, holy, 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 this one came to earth as a man. We would look at him, and we would pass him by. If not for being given life, ourselves. He lived just like we do. He had troubles. He had challenges. He had difficulties. As I said, all of these things, oppressive government, misguided religious establishment, continually dodging those who wanted to kill him. We look here at verse 15. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me now this is important children because otherwise we won't really understand this verse here so let's think about this for a minute who was born first on earth John the Baptist or the Lord Jesus now we know their mothers were cousins right Mary was the younger of the two who was born first If you were to say John the Baptist, you would be right. And that is a matter that is shown in Scripture clearly. We don't need to go there now. But nonetheless, if you were to say the Lord Jesus was born after John the Baptist on earth, you would of course be correct. But this is what it makes so amazing here in verse 15. John said, He who comes after me, that is born after me, ranks before me because he was before me. And you want to maybe say a very academic huh so john the apostle is saying look this is what john the baptizer meant he he meant that the lord jesus is eternal he was before me He ranks before me. As a matter of fact, I'm not worthy even to unlatch his sandals. This is the stature of Messiah, the one who was proclaimed long before I came and lived long before I did. John testifies of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no angel, angels aren't eternal. They were created. But not Jesus. Verses 16 and 17, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given. Grace and truth came. The law was given. Grace and truth came. The law was given... Think of Moses. Grace and truth came. Think of Jesus. The law was given. Grace and truth came. There's nothing wrong with the law. Messiah's coming is not plan B. It was preparatory in nature. And then finally we see here in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the holy God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The man in our study of Babing's wonderful works of God, we're, we're learning about this as well. We have affirmed in our last meeting that we must know Jesus to know who God is, and that he alone has revealed him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah came in the flesh, though not in the way of a typical conquering force, the picture of vulnerability. The majority of humanity rejected Jesus as the Christ, due primarily to the fact that they didn't understand the real meaning of the prophecies and were blinded by their own sinfulness. Yet those who did believe and do believe will put on a new essence of life, the true life that is in Christ, the life giver, And again, as I said in verse 9, Christ is the only source of this life-giving light. Verse 16, Christ is the only source of this grace which we must have to live. Christ is the ultimate knowledge of God which we must know in order to know God. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's great news. It's great news. The one who has come in the flesh is, of course, coming back. And we celebrate Him today. Will we be a people who recognize our need and so don't overlook the Savior? That we recognize that our own sinfulness is places in a condition in which we desperately need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ has come to freely offer Himself a grace which is absolutely efficient for all who will come. Will you trust in Christ Are you trusting in Christ today? Let us pray.